So the kind of things we do, we can break it into, into various areas really. Um, a lot of the rivers have been historically straightened, widened and deepened to um, benefit land drainage, to enable more um, crops to be grown. A lot of this happened after the end of World War II. So after we'd, um, we'd experienced some rationing and the fear of um, being blockaded during the war. Um, so there's a big push from the Ministry of Agriculture to increase production and our predecessor organisations were involved in straightening, widening and deepening rivers. So that was the policy decision of the time, but what it's left us with is these, these quite simplified river habitats. They're often more like kind of linear ponds or, um, than, 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 than tr true rivers, if you like. So what we try and do is just add a bit more habitat complexity back to those rivers, and that can be in the form of riverside tree planting, so not covering the rivers with trees, but just getting a bit more tree cover in places we need it to get a bit more dappled shade and provide a bit of habitat diversity. So the tree roots grow out into the river and they provide really important habitat for fish and they also provide a really important habitat for invertebrates. The leaves falling into the river form a big part of the food chain and provide a lot of food for invertebrates which then feed the fish. Um, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. The other thing we're trying to do is where there are weirs and sluices in the river that nobody needs anymore, um, we try and get those removed because then once they're removed, fish and eels can move more easily up and downstream. So that's the kind of f focus of, of the work that the team I'm in are doing. Working with the Environment Agency has given me a real insight of, of this river in particular. Um, it's fascinating that you've got so many different habitats, but from a fish's point of view, that's how I try and think, you're coming from the, you know, especially eels and trout um, and shad to some extent, you're coming from the North Sea into an estuary that's pretty short and then you're coming into a freshwater river system and the problems with today is you've got intakes, shipping channels, dredging, hydropower schemes, weirs and you've got all this to negotiate and it's um, for the environment agency we try and juggle people's needs for the environment and, f and obviously animals as well um, and in my case fish so it's trying to get that perfect link between people enjoying enjoying their lives in the environment and fish being able to to um, repopulate themselves and survive as well. So yeah, it's a really important role the environment agency have. So many many river channels are you know they're over wide, over deep, and over straight which of course in, in, in um, parts of the main river they will always be that way of course because people use them for boating and, and everything but on, on some of the, the, the smaller tributaries and, and um, further upstream on the main river Stur it is uh, uh, much better for wildlife and fish particularly if we're able to um, help the river meander more, more naturally um, uh, have a diversity of different flows within the river so you know often if, if you if you think of a, a river that's been sort of over wide and over deep it really functions almost like like a drain really so so water is, is moving at, at a similar um, rate down that channel but you know what fish and, and other wildlife need and, and require is a diversity of different habitats within the river so um, you know that they, they want some fast flowing well oxygenated riffles for so there are some species of fish that will spawn particularly or, or they will only spawn on on gravel and and gravel that, that's um, clean gravel so there it's not hasn't got sediment all, all over it so for that habitat you need a fast flowing um, shallow um, w water running over it so species like um, dace and, and brown trout will spawn on on um, gravels, um, but you also want, 
you know, d deeper pools. Um, you know, fish will um, use pools if they're sort of resting, you know, that they want to avoid the faster flow of the water. And, and often you'll get fish that will um, sit right at the bottom of deep pools within the river. And, and that, that way they can avoid predation um, from, you know, birds and, 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 and pike and, and, and other, you know, predatory fish. The species that obviously have declined the most are the ones that we're trying to address. So they're the ones that we, we, we say, oh, you know, that we've got the eel, the shad as well, like herring-like fish. Um, they're the species that meant the most to us, obviously, like I was saying, with the commercial importance but also that they're in of importance in society. Um, eels on the East Coast and, and Essex especially, as, as well as Suffolk and Norfolk, were, were so important. So, I mean, obviously the money dictates some of the importance and we wouldn't be studying and putting as much resource into species that that didn't have that commercial importance, but um, they, they're all registered as, as equal importance when you're looking at um, the theory behind it, and you don't, you don't want to have one species that dominates another, you want biodiversity, that's what it's all about, you need, you need a, a mixture of species to make up a healthy environment, um, because then a different, uh, a different diversity of birds will feed on a different diversity of fish, and the different diversity of fish will feed on a different diversity of insects. Um, so if you get this sort of mono, monotrophic group, um, it, it's, it becomes a different environment. Um, we don't get as many species as obviously some areas of of coral reefs and places like that, but we can get up to sort of 150 species on the coast. Um, we normally record in the Star Estuary. We we record can record up to 30 species on one survey. So we're finding that the kelp we're finding kelp is coming back as well in the in the estuary. Um, so although there's problems with the freshwater and the, and, the, and the estuarine environment, there's still a massive amount of, of positives that we see every year. Um, the Orwell is different because it's dredged more for shipping, so that industry does impact on the benthic community, on the bottom community, and that supports the fish obviously. So. Um, but yeah, it's special species. I mean, we had this year off of Rab Ness, we caught a lovely, a lovely shark, you know, a, a, a um, lesser dogfish, which is quite common for fishermen, but we don't normally get them in the surveys. And it curled itself up like a ball. I've, I've videoed it for, you know, to, to put on the next video, and it's so, such a sweet little thing. Um, but garfish as well is quite a rare fish that we found. Um, yeah, so there's some really, really great fish out there um, to see. But yet to see a large shark here. <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> uh, we've got a team of fisheries officers here at the Environment Agency and they do fish surveys of the rivers every year. And so they can look at long-term trends and see how different species are doing and um, how they're faring and so we know for a, a particular river the kind of fish that ought to be there so whether it's pike or bullhead or um, trout or perch or that sort of stuff so we would then if the fish survey data is showing that there is a bit of an issue or that the, the river is not as good as it could be then we would undertake projects within the river channel to try and improve the habitat diversity for fish. So the kind of things we can do are really simple stuff that doesn't really affect landowners at all and is, is really useful. 
is things like where you've got um, ditches or dikes coming into the river, often those get silted up and are overgrown, but just bringing in a digger in and opening them up, you create a nice backwater for, for fish. So they've got somewhere they can hide from the high flows and they can escape predation from, from other fish. So that works, that works really well. And as I say, removing redundant weirs and sluices is a good thing because that means that fish can move up and downstream freely. They're not confined within a piece of river with an upstream sluice and a downstream sluice. They can move more freely through the, through the catchment. So if you've got a good fish population, that's going to help um, all sorts of other things. You know, you're going to have, you know, we have the, the more habitat diversity you have, you're going to have good invertebrate populations. That will, you know, help with you know, the, the plants and invertebrates interrelate together. Where you've got good river habitats you'll, and you've got mink being controlled, you'll have water vole doing well. So that's really important. And if you've got good fish populations, you will be able to support otter populations as well. So it's all about that, trying to get a good balance, a good habitat going in the river that can then support invertebrates, fish, plants, water vole, otters, and, and so on. So that's, that's kind of where we're, where we're trying to head. The, I suppose the thing that we have in, in, you know, in, in common is that in our work with all of those different people and groups we're looking at what those individual rivers need in terms of what condition are they in now and what condition do they need to be in so we are driven very much by um, the evidence and, and data that we gather so we do an awful lot of environmental monitoring in the environment agencies a lot of water quality monitoring a lot of monitoring of invertebrates and plants and as a result of that monitoring, every watercourse is assigned a, a status. So it's, it's assigned either high, good, moderate, poor or bad ecological status. Um, and this classification comes from the Water Framework Directive. And that's under that Water Framework Directive, we are required to help move, try and move these rivers towards good ecological status. That's where they need to get to. So high status is, is probably impossible for our part of the world because that is, you'd be looking at like a sort of Scottish mountain stream or something like that. Something that's been basically untouched by, by mankind, if you like. Um, and, but in our part of the world where you've got a lot, of, a lot of farming, a lot of people, a lot of roads, to get to good status is, is a real big thing. And all of those um, rivers to get to good status is, is quite an achievement. So. If a river is classified as moderate now, that's still pretty good. It doesn't sound that good to them. It's a really tough, tough classification. So, um, you know, a moderate river, I would still happily swim in a moderate status river. So good is actually, you know, is a really tough target to, to reach. So we have to, we have to reach that target, even though we've got lots of new houses being built and people using more water and new roads going in and obviously water being taken for public water supply from our rivers and also for, for agriculture as well. It's a hugely important part of this area. resources get cut it can be difficult that's why I use the river wardens to help or students as well and see the future of environmental monitoring falling down falling into um, into students and and volunteers in science is really important I mean you've seen with the birds um, watching and the garden bird surveys have got really good data um, sets from that and you know, it's a bit more difficult with fish because you can't get everyone going around with underwater cameras or snorkeling in the River Stour, can you? But, yeah. It is recommended though, snorkeling in the river is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> but it's just, I don't know if you notice the, the colour changes in the river. You do get algal blooms and diatom shifts throughout the year as well. So that, that, that colour can 
can can really change through the, through the course of the summer, um, and that is down to the flow as well. So if you've got a lot of flow, it's constantly being fresh freshened up. But when it's very still, almost stagnant, you get a different algal community, and you get that really green or red brown colour to the water. It's not dirty. Like some people come up to and say, the river's really dirty. It's, it's not. It's actually a microscopic plant. Um, but yeah, but when, when it's clear, it's really good for snorkeling. We've got the, the fishing club at the moment, um, Sudbury and Long Melford Fishing Club. They're keen. Do you know Lady Island up at Friars Meadow at Sudbury? Oh, yeah. They mm. just put a path in there. Yeah, yeah, Footpath. yeah, but it's got very overgrown with root mass, but one sort of vegetation in there, so that is a perfect sort of refuge scrape. So, working hopefully with them to, to get some of that heavy root mass out so the channel can be re established for fish um, refuge. That would be a great project long term, and that would all be partnership based you know the funding will come initial bit of funding could come from rod license money but my long-term goal for that would be to have you know great area for people to walk around bird watching but then you've got the fishing club that could use the island so they're not you know they're not getting boaters arguing with them um yeah so it's yeah those kind of sites we're really interested in in working with partners to develop regular in the foot river you are perch roach uh, some dace chub a lot of people go for the chub but there are tench and bream there as well the the one that i've seen most of and people from the club seem to target are the chub and the chub are hard fighting um, but you get a lot of small fish at the same time and eels as well there are eels but all good all good I only go fishing to catch fish I don't go fishing to uh, target specifically anything there are a lot of fish they tend to uh, go in certain areas and the work that the environment agency have done the last few years they have literally found them concentrated in quite small areas when they've done their underwater um, camera situations so they which is which is good in some respects but you you need to know where they are <laughs> if you're fishing i would have said that the dragonfly population was pretty good um, this year i don't think i've seen as many as i have in previous years the, the riverbank just opposite um, used to have a lot more reeds and rushes along the margins um, but some people um, prefer to see the water and there's been a, a work party formed in the village to actually clear those and I do wonder if that's contributed to the decline in the last couple of years you can relate it to one species like we're doing now today here at the eel trap um, with our focus is to record young elvers that come into the river and they've come from a migration from near Bermuda the Sargasso Sea all the way across the ocean and although this time of the year isn't their migration into the freshwater we're still finding that pockets of eels are sort of biding their time, um, working their way over, either recruiting in the estuaries, and then they use the spring to migrate into the freshwater. Um, but I've turned on the eel trap today just to see 
if there are some elvers that are actually using the winter as well and see you know all these little things scientific data sets we we can get from these eel traps weather stations whatever kind of apparatus you're using give us a picture of climate change not only for what's happening here but for what's happening in the world as well so really important one one species can tell us a lot about ourselves and and the environment and the poor eel you know it's on this river especially it's it's massively declined so in that time that I've been surveying you know the first surveys we were we were getting a lot more adult eels in the middle of the river say pick a site like Pitmire you know or um, Henny that area the fish survey data we were getting from a hundred meters of electric fishing survey so you'd have a net and a, a um, that would net out a hundred meters and then you use a boat with electric anodes and that would go down the river and and with the fish get attracted to the electrodes so we can catch them out take a scale to age them and then um, size them and then hold them in a cage in the in the, the river and then put them back in the river afterwards from that information we can see long-term short-term trends of what the fish populations are doing and on the eels when I first started you know they've still obviously started this massive decline in the 80s uh, and even before then but even in my time I saw that declining down to at Henny, you know, we were getting 20, 15 years ago, and now we're getting one or two eels just in those sites. Um, so yeah, it's, it's important we keep those data sets going, definitely. Yeah, this, this section has, we actually survey upstream here, about 100 metres up is our survey site. So we've got a fish survey on that stretch. The river has changed quite a lot for the, for the better um, with the change of dredge. They used to dredge it a lot, and although dredging is excellent for 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 boat passage and some species of fish at like deep deep you know dark water, the does it the plant communities are very important. And if they get dug out, that important refuge and the feed and the food it provides for the other fish species and then the birds um, gets taken out. So we're finding, on one hand, the river look in some areas is very overgrown and looks a bit unsightly and almost people say the river's choked. But when you actually survey it for fish, you find that there's more fish in there. So there's a balance from this sort of completely over-managed navigation for boats and stuff to a wild environment. We're not going to have either anymore. Um, we, we need a sort of 50-50 and we need to get that, that. That's one balance that, that, that is really tricky actually. And you can understand from the boat users and, and the aesthetics of the river they want to see it deep and 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 full but from a scientific point of view this river if you went back before the gates were put in the locks and it was used for navigation it would all have been marsh up to dead you know deadham and then victorians changed that and really the river would have been a meandering shallow quite fast system like any lowland river and that we're never going to achieve that and we wouldn't want to because people live on the river and it's used completely differently now but but that, that's what the river wants to be it doesn't really want to be enclosed it's a wild thing isn't it um but uh you know we, we have to strike a balance somewhere i, I agree you can't have it completely overgrown um, but you do need a 50-50 really for birds and wildlife and then be able to navigate it as well, canoes, 
enjoy the aesthetics of it. But uh, if you were a fish, you wouldn't want any of these structures and you'd want it quite flowing, wouldn't you? So it's hard to take myself away sometimes from how a fish thinks and how a human thinks. They're two very different things. <laughs> Although the uh, results for the stale are coming up quite well, we, we do know that there are quite a few specific issues that do need addressing to improve the health of the river. And uh, one of those is low flow in summertime. And the Environment Agency are working very hard to improve the amount of flow that comes into the river. It's obviously a key factor in maintaining oxygen levels, keeping the fish healthy. There are also parts of the river where shade is a big issue or rather the lack of it um, if the river sits there baking in full sun that isn't good for any of the creatures for the health of the river and so there's been an awful lot of tree planting the uh, Star Valley team the AONB team planted something like 5,000 trees last year and in fact I did a few days to help with that so by planting trees along the length of the river it provides shade uh, when those trees mature it will also provide insects which will drop into the water and be food for fish and the other creatures and also wood drops into the river which um, is also a very valuable resource for many creatures. There's said to be something like about 130 species that actually depend uh, for their life cycle on wood being in the water and so you know, if a branch drops off and is left there, not, not cleared out too zealously, that's, uh, that's extremely good. Another big issue on the stow is fish passage. Uh, migratory fish like uh, salmon, sea trout and eels are in desperate need of easy passage up and down the river to complete their breeding cycles and at present uh, they haven't got easy passage there are some fish are making it but we're making it very difficult for them so that needs to be improved by putting in fish pass uh, passages and all the rest but in addition to that even the fish that never leave the river also need to be able to move up and down if there was a pollution accident at one point if there was low oxygen for instance or maybe the river was overheating those fish also need to be able to move to uh, a safer part. So for all those reasons, fish passage is extremely important and um, it's all being worked on. The River Stow is a low energy river, so it's a fancy way of saying that it hasn't got much drop down to the sea, <laughs> so it's slow. And um, what I like about these floodplains is the way the river is not static and it's dynamic and you can see while you're working here from year to year how the meanders actually happen so downstream there you've got an ash that's collapsed on one side and that's caused the river to gouge out the opposite bank and it's still doing it and um, here you've got another ash and that will cause the river to go around that and start to gouge out the other side and you've got these meanders that start to appear and uh, the bank is collapsing isn't it further on it's, yeah. it's actually collapsing so we're losing <laughs> some of the reserve but I like that because because the river's doing what it what, what a river should do and, and I'm so disappointed when people think that rivers are simply a way of sluicing water into the sea and they have to be canalised and controlled and uh, put in a straitjacket and culverted. And, but no, a river is a dynamic thing and should be allowed to be a river. And, and on this stretch here, it is allowed to be a river. People moan about that because further down, you've got so much emergent vegetation that um, you've got well, all sorts of things are going on that the flow is being held up, it's, it's sort of pooling in different areas and uh, people think, oh no, you've got to go and dredge the river. No, you haven't. You've got to let the river be the river. And those plants that are growing are native plants, they've always been here. And, and they, that, they're all part 
of how the river changes. They exploit what the river has created, um, then they actually affect the river in turn, that they change the flow of the river again, these plants that grow up, and I just think it's absolutely fantastic to watch. You know, I think there are more species of tree than people realise that are happy growing on a riverbank. Um, but we, we will plant some of the more stereotypical ones, like alder we'll obviously plant, um, various species of willow, which obviously um, are very, very happy growing in, in, in damp conditions. Although, it has to be said that some riverbanks are actually quite dry, and, and that's actually because of past dredging. So all the gravels have been scraped out of the riverbed, put on top of the bank so that um, so you've got gravels on, on top of the bank so the water drains through the gravel so it can be quite hard to get newly planted trees established be, um, because their roots aren't long enough until they get past the gravels in, into the soil beneath um, but yeah we plant you know field maple um, but what what we what we try to do is be flexible and, and compromise and work with landowners. Um, so we come up with a tree planting plan that suits them and that, that they're happy with. You know, sometimes, sometimes rightly so, landowners might have concerns over future maintenance of the trees because it is, it is actually um, landowners. Um, it's their responsibility to actually, you know, if to clear if a fallen tree was causing it, causing a problem. I mean the Environment Agency can come out under certain um, circumstances. In many cases it is the landowner's responsibility to clear a tree. So if a landowner doesn't want these long-term maintenance headaches if you like, we can plant species of tree that aren't fast growing um, you know because willows and things will, they are very fast growing and they do cra crash down and, and cause blockages in channels. I mean that, that, that's there's no, there's no doubting that, but there are other species of tree that can be planted that won't do that, um, and also, you know, smaller shrubs and things that are, are, won't cause you a problem. Um, so yeah, we, we come up with a with a plan um, that works for the landowner. Yes, one of the important things with the tree planting is to ensure that there's a mix of species and the AONB team have been very good at uh, ensuring that we've, we've had a good variety of species to plant. So that includes, for instance, blackthorn, hawthorn, hazel, holly, uh, gelder rose and spindle. And all these are species that are good for the river, will provide shade and also provide environment and food for the wildlife. Black poplars are a very traditional species and they've really been under threat of late, uh, almost extinct. And the AONB team has set up a nursery for, for, for black poplars to grow them on and to plant them out. And they have indeed been planted out at a few places. And so hopefully we'll see a recovery in the numbers. It's the UK's rarest timber tree, native timber tree. So a lot of black poplars were, were replaced many years ago by faster growing non-native varieties. Um, so many black poplar were, were lost but because of that and, and, and replaced. But there are native poplar tree um, and they're stereotypical tree for growing on, on, uh, in marshy areas and, and floodplains and things. Um, and they're another tree, you know, great for great for wildlife, they're great for moths, um, bats and things. In February, we should be with licensed uh, workers, we should be checking our pillboxes for bats, because we've converted those with uh, a Dead and Vale grant into bat high binoculars. So every winter there are bats um, uh, <coughs> roosting or hibernating in those. Um, Summertime, of course, there's, there's a lot of amenity work. There's amenity mowing, Friars Meadow, where I met you last time, has to be mown. That's the sort of playground of the people of Sudbury who can go out and picnic and barbecue and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, it's a busy schedule. It's, it's, you know, 
and it keeps coming round, keeps coming round. So always something of interest. Even here, you know, we're using the chainsaws for coppice, whereas originally we wouldn't have. If you look over there, you can see there's a laid hedge. Well, again, we're using, uh, to a certain extent, modern technology um, to, do, to do that, although it's the tradition that we're looking for. Uh, why? Because it creates good habitat. You get a good, thick hedge. Uh, and that's, of course, one, the one thing that people do approve of and appreciate us doing is laying hedges. Coppicing, they frown upon because it, they think it's cutting down trees. Coppicing is actually rejuvenating. And what we're doing here is we're creating an understory so we get much more diverse uh, plantation because these are plantations. But these plantations here in Corner Country Park, it still have their value. For example, the one at the top, which you may have come past, either side of that there are fragments of ancient woodland, full of bluebells, our native Hyacinthoides non scripta, uh, among other ancient woodland indicator plants. But the plantation, there's a plantation that connects the two, and now there are native bluebells beginning to grow and move into those areas. So, you know, give it 500 years, there'll be a lovely patch of bluebells in there too. <laughs> Never all you think it's ancient woodland. <laughs> we need to have a long-term vision um, and, you know, we have to, to, to believe in, you know, scientifically proven things that that they they are going to have positive impacts in the future but as, as you rightly say yeah trees take a long time to grow so um you know but it, it isn't just tree planting there are other methods of uh, natural flood management that you can use in addition to tree planting that will have an, an immediate Im impact you know there are ways of of holding the water um you know within a floodplain holding it up when it when it floods you hold the water up on on, on the floodplain so it, um, it's it's reducing the amount of water further downstream so there are methods that can have an immediate impact as well as a result of the walkover surveys which were part of the water framework directive which was a, like an eu directive and so that's um took place roughly between 2012 and 2015, I think. Um, that identified areas, not just on this bit of the store, but the whole of the store and its tributaries, uh, where improvements could be made. And um, yeah, things like putting in fish bypasses to um, avoid weirs and lock gates and things like that and um, and we've I've been uh, lucky enough to take part in some of the improvements um, including like the flow defectors I think in your film you had a picture of something up at uh, Little Bradley uh, okay. barrier well, I, I helped to put that in <laughs> and uh, things like that and also the um, planted loads of trees in areas where the banks, you know, there weren't sufficient trees uh, to provide the shelter. I mean, fish apparently don't like the water to get too hot and, you know, having lots of tree cover helps to keep the water cool. So we've done lots of tree planting and, um, as I say, the flow defectors and and also clearing the non-native species, like um, mostly I, I've done Himalayan balsam, which we have got a bit here in Nayland. And Joe and I go out um, with our big gloves and try, and try to avoid getting stung by stinging nettles. And we, yeah, we think, we've, we think we've made a difference. There's a definitely not as much as when we started two years ago. We're getting all these uh, surveys that are, that are telling us that wildlife is declining. And I've been here 29 years almost. And so I've, I've actually been able to see how some of the wildlife is declining. If we take, for example, what in the early days, 
when I was doing guided walks, and I particularly remember the Lavenham Bird Club, their chairman, <coughs> chairman used to say, oh, the, the grey wagtail is your iconic species, uh, because we had them nesting all the way down the common lands and down onto Cornard Riverside. Last year, I think we were down to two pairs. So that was from six or seven pairs. So we're seeing, you know, in our terms and our lifespan, it's a relatively slow process, but in terms of the planet, it's really, really scarily fast. Um, so our work is to try and slow that down. Of course, we're a very small area in a vast sea of agricultural land and more needs to be done on a wider scale to slow down the, the losses. Um, but you know, there are all sorts of things that can be done. We put up owl boxes, barn owl boxes uh, on, the, on our land opposite Friars Meadow. We've uh, raised 10 chicks there. We've got barn owl boxes here in the country park and we've had barn owls in them, although they haven't bred. Last year wasn't particularly good for them. There was a dearth of voles and mice because of the drought and the heat wave. Uh, and the hornets, <coughs> hornets really thrived in that heat. They took over one of the owl boxes here, one on the common lands, and a friend of mine at uh, Stanton, she said they did have uh, three barn owl chicks, but the hornets took over and it's curtains for them, which is very sad. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of things that can be done. I'm now involved in uh, a SWIFT project. Uh, so that's, although it's not directly involved with my work with the charity, uh, it's through the Suffolk Wildlife Trust. I've been a volunteer advisor for them for many, many years. Uh, and we've put in uh, SWIFT nest boxes in St. Peter's Church. And we're, fingers crossed, we're very hopeful that we're going to get them nesting in there this year. Um, we had great success in attracting them last year when we put the boxes in and you have a call system and uh, within eight minutes of the call system being switched on the Swifts were cruising past the tower, down past the tower and investigating and having a look and uh, up to 30, 35 Swifts screaming across the face of the tower, fantastic, that's what it's about. We were doing a lot at the moment for barn owls, for example, um, but actually there's a lot of other species I think we need to uh, to try and encourage. Um, and and you need that connectivity if you're doing that so that the species can can move around, I think, and, and that's one of the great problems. I think we've, we've missed that boat. In, not we in Denville, but I think nationally we've missed that boat of trying to develop areas. So there is uh, there are these green... Um, Roots for, for for animals and birds and things to uh, to move from one habitat, you know, to, to another one. Um, I was talking to a ranger in Colchester High High Woods the other day, and they're desperately trying to get um, dormice back into High Woods. They can't do it because they just think that the area is now so totally surrounded by development that the dormice won't come back. So you could obviously reintroduce them. But um, to get them to come in on their own accord is, is not possible. So I think we've missed a trick somewhere there in the past few years and not, not having those connections um, for wildlife to be able to move around. And the flora as well, I suppose, that needs to move um, along these sort of routes as well. Uh, one of the things which we did this year uh, was uh, plant uh, about 2,500 hedgerow plants, partly on the reserve, but partly connecting the reserve to nearby plantations you know, along the, the uh, field boundaries with the support of the local farmers um, because it's all very well having you know, this beautiful site but if it's just an oasis with just open farmland where nature's got nowhere to, no cover then it uh, doesn't work so well so it's about creating those corridors. Um, it was quite tough going because uh, we had a volunteer uh, weekend planned and that was when the, the beast from the east came so <laughs> that scuppered that but we uh, we got them in over the coming weeks with smaller volunteer parties um, and then of course we then got hit by the drought so some of them will have been lost uh, but uh, hopefully a good number will survive and uh, it'll, it'll grow into some good hedgerows um, connecting the reserve to nearby cover.
Yeah, it's about 20, 28% of our farm is um, not, not farmed arable. It's either meadows or woodland or scrub or um, field margins, that sort of thing. I can hear a turtle dove. Our turtle doves are very rare. Uh, numbers have fallen by 97% in the last 30 years. And so that was very exciting. Yeah. And that's because we have habitat here which suits them. We've heard, you know, you're quite unlucky not to hear a, a cuckoo. So they've been singing, singing all morning. And they're rare now. And a number of other birds, you know, which hopefully will be coming back. We've had a, a, a um, what are slow worms, which are sort of you know, big, big little snakes almost. Grass snakes we've had here. Um, all kinds of different sorts of birds. But we ha ha it's wonderful to hear the skylarks. And just out in the, me in, in the, in the park there. Marvellous. We've got house martins up there. Swallows. Just magic. There weren't so many mallard ducks, but there were a few like little grebes and things like that. And I say the bird, like the swallows and wagtails and, and kingfishers, um, still sea kingfishers, um, but not, I don't think. Of course, you know, it might just be that I live in a different, you know, I could see them from the windows at the anchor because they sat on the bridge when they dived in. Um, and the swans, of course. Yeah, but I'm not sure um, there was a lot more wildlife apart from that. Um, but I say the butterflies and insects in general. I mean, if you left the light on and the window open in the evening, by morning there would be a great pile of you know dead insects on the floor underneath. Do that now, and there's not nothing. Nothing comes in the windows, which, you know, is more of a, not just a Nayland problem, but, I mean, when I was young, um, when I was about 13 or so, I joined the Young Ornithologist Club and uh, spent quite a lot of time over the fens. Um, and, in the, I mean, there were flocks, hundreds and thousands of, lapwings and I don't think I've seen one for years not even a single one over on the fens and we go around there about every sort of three weeks or so we do the a, you know a dedicated river day where we specifically go out to look for things and uh, we've yet to see a lapwing it is managed for dragonflies and damselflies and we've got 22 species recorded um, which is the same number that we've got at Wickham Fen which is a much more famous uh, dragonfly site but um, we are noted now regionally and a lot of people know that this is a good place to come and we get plenty of people dropping by in the season to uh, watch these amazing insects um, we've even had a couple of rarities turn up, and the most notable being variable damselfly, which hadn't been recorded in this area for 40 odd years. So, uh, so um, yeah, that's uh, that's the the uh, dragonflies, but there's a lot more to it than that. Um, we've had a massive influx in uh, species associated with cattle dung since we started grazing it which I've been recording which has been quite interesting but we've got some obviously higher um, uh, wildlife as well so birds are good um, it's a fantastic site in the summer for reed warblers reed, reed buntings um, sedge warbler we've even had nightingale um, we're trying to encourage them by making the habitat right for nightingale but that is a difficult run with their declines and uh, we have, get other interesting birds popping up now and again. A couple of winters ago we had some uh, bearded tits on the reserve. Um, we've had red kite flying over and um, water rail. Um, as for mammals, we've got a good population of harvest mice. We've been looking for dormice but we've not found any. So. I've seen a hobby for the first time on the reserve, mm. first time in my life. 
uh, they come and uh, hunt the dragonflies. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and uh, people see kingfisher here. Uh, I've been longing to see one. I just just the other day, I saw one for the first time here. I've been working a good many days as a volunteer, to head down, doing the work that Mark gives us to do. <laughs> but eventually, I saw the kingfisher. Jerry had seen it a good few times, I think. Yeah. But I got a good good view of it on the tree over there, yeah. sitting perched over the over the pond. Yes, we'll leave that willow. <laughs> yeah. This is the route of the public footpath, so the old public footpath that uh, went sort of from Glensford and Cavendish Way along the river, crossed the uh, meadow here and then carries on to Liston and beyond across the farmland. This uh, used to flood every winter and I thought to myself it'd be great to have a boardwalk so we could walk through the tall vegetation which the cattle have uh, lowered somewhat. And um, also that would open up the footpath as well because this floods every winter. Um, it's not flooded very greatly at the moment but generally speaking we get quite a substantial area of flood water here that's uh, sort of up to knee height uh, or just be at the welly height anyway. And uh, that will keep, keep this open. So Essex County Council were interested in that and decided to um, come in and collaborate with us on the project. So we've got 132 metres of it here, and uh, we'll just hope that. And it's it is a, already been a benefit to people. So mm. Mm. yeah, and some nice gentle curves. So I'm I'm always keen to keep rights of way open um, rather than divert. So it's but I also think it's an opportunity for us people to get in amongst the nature as well, and to keep them to a track rather than just walking through and disturbing the habitats. Well, we do guided tours. Uh, we're hoping to build up more schools visits so they can look at uh, how reserves work and they can understand more about nature and about the life cycle of some of the uh, um, the, the dragonflies and damselflies, the bird life, uh, and uh, yeah, just understand uh, um, about the river and the ponds and the, the uh, aquatic life. Um, so Mark's uh, really good at uh, helping to look into the river and uh, find out what's there and uh, look around them and uh, he's got youngsters involved in actually doing reserve jobs like building a bird screen so he had the had them cutting down hazel poles and uh, weaving willow in amongst them and uh, creating a screen <laughs> they got a kind of a picture of uh, uh, what uh, the jobs are for a reserve manager um, yeah so we've had uh, groups come to uh, study nature here, um, the plant life, the insect life, we've had uh, outdoor worship here, uh, we've had uh, pic groups coming for picnics, uh, we had a bio blitz last year when experts in different fields came to study the number of species here and got some really interesting finds with um, bat walks and uh, moth traps and uh, bird surveys. Bird, bird nets don't we? Yeah, bird netting bird ringing yeah so there's uh, it's building we want to get people engaged and understand how it works and enjoy it and uh, sport it and inspired hopefully to actually say we need to look after nature wherever we are